Hello, my friends. Today, we are talking to Sanjay, the Chief Digital Officer at Ginpak, and we discuss the four industry trends that are powering digital transformation, how ethics will play a role in the advancement of artificial intelligence, and what the future of work will look like as more processes become automated. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Are you a professional? Have you ever been paid to model before? <laughs> I've been, I've been, many people have set, helped me set up all the lighting. So uh, thanks to them. It looks really good. Got a lot of books back there. Yeah. You read a lot? I used to, uh, the hard copy books. Now I read everything electronically, uh, but I used to read hard copy books. So many of these are from, uh, from, uh, from business school and engineering school. And then obviously all of the technical books. So. Yeah, I do read a lot. What I do is I do the Audible, and then when I really like the book and I want to remember it, I buy the physical copy and then put it up in my office so when I walk by it, I see it and I think of the principles in the book. That's a good way of doing it. Yeah. I guess the audio thing works if you work out or if you drive, because I know people that do that and they re or if they run, like it's an awesome thing to do. But if you don't do, I don't do long commutes, or none of us do now in our new work from home <laughs> environment anyway. So then it becomes, it loses its thing. So so last time, and so this is the second time we're talking, but it's the first time the episode's going to air because last time we had some audio quality issues. So I'm very sorry about that. Happens once in a while. I'm sorry that it happened on my end, but uh, glad that we could do it again. When I heard that, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, we have to get Sanjay's brilliant insight and advice out to the world. This is unacceptable. So I'm so glad we were able to do it again. Oh, you're very kind. So we're just going to hang out and talk. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So one of the topics I was pretty excited to talk with you about was this content I saw that you put out for industry trends for digital transformation. So I always try to find out like where the, the areas that, you know, people are experts in and let them, let them share so we can bring the best knowledge out to the people. So I'm curious what's going on. What are the trends for digital transformation? I think, Joe, one of the, before we get into the trends, one of the largest things that's happening is that digital transformation has become a boardroom imperative for most corporations. As we get through the pandemic and as we start reconfiguring our business models to the new normal, and then start thinking about how do we grow out of the pandemic, the reality is that digital transformation becomes the path and the way to do that. And that's becoming pretty high on everyone's list. And as a result of that, and you've seen different numbers, you know, two years of digital transformation is getting there in two months. I saw in one place four years of digital transformation in four months, et cetera, right? But I think if you go one layer deeper, what's happening behind that large-scale uh, drive are four trends that are coming through. The first one is cloud journeys are accelerating. Now, cloud was always known to be, uh, you know, a great economically uh, viable alternative. It was seen to be a place you could manage and control your infrastructure centrally. But what's happened is the pandemic has taught us that cloud can scale. And it's actually answered one of the biggest questions that was on, on paper, which is, can the cloud actually scale? We've answered that question. We've had a lot more people, some reluctantly, now become users of the cloud. I mean, the technology you and I are using today is a cloud-based technology just to talk. And so more people have sort of bought into and understand and personally experienced the benefits of it. And then the real reality is that as you try and bring in new capabilities to address the gaps that have come through because of the pandemic, you need a new technology backbone. You need a business technology architecture that uh, gives you those new capabilities. And really the only way to deliver them at speed is on the cloud because, and using the cloud as a backbone. So we think cloud journey is accelerating. That's trend number one. And the second big thing that's going on is the role of data and analytics. Data and analytics were always important, but now each of us are relating to it in a very different way. I mean, my parents, for instance, who um, were planning to do some travel, they become data science experts. They wake up every morning, they look at papers, they understand flattening the curve, they understand graphs. I mean, they're data scientists trying to figure out what's the right time for them to get on this flight, as an example. And if that's the case in our personal lives, can you imagine what's happening in the enterprise? Business world is just running a buzz around figuring out trends and decisions around supply chain and dynamic allocation and parts inventory and e-commerce trends and so forth. So that's the second big thing that's happening. I think the third one is, 
this end-to-end digitization. The reality is if you look at any business process, the front end always got the investment to get digitized. So we see all these e-commerce front ends. We can go to portals. We can shop electronically, right? And all of that happens on the front end of the entire value chain of buying something, manufacturing it, shipping it, and getting paid for it, right? But as you start walking back into the rest of the ecosystem, the rest of those capabilities hadn't really fully digitized. And so you had this kind of balance between front end that was there and the middle and back office that wasn't quite there. And what's happened is in the pandemic, many large enterprises have gone from things like 50-50 online retail, so the, amount, the percent of your goods that you sell one way or the other, they've gone from 50-50 to 100-0, and it's happened overnight. And so you've got all of this commerce coming through on the front end, and then as it hits the middle office, it hits bottlenecks, and so the supply chain becomes an issue, allocations become an issue, SKUs and just the proliferation of SKUs become an issue. And so you kind of move on through all of that, and what's required is to digitize it end-to-end. And so this end-to-end digitization that allows you to kind of give the same capability across the uh, entire customer experience becomes very important. So those are three big trends. Look, the fourth one is we're all adopting AI, artificial intelligence, more and more. And artificial intelligence got a lot of positives, and I'm a big proponent and believer. We do so many uh, projects in artificial intelligence. But one of the things that always gets sort of missed in the loop is the role of the human and the human in the loop. And I think whether it's sort of you know, thinking about the human in terms of designing better AI, thinking about the role of the human and actually curating and tuning the AI to be more higher accuracy, or in being able to use the AI to drive higher level predictability and make better judgment calls, that role cannot be forgotten in all of this technology discussion. And so we're seeing a big trend line around thinking about human in the loop and proactively planning for that. So Joel, those are the four big things I see in the industry today. Oh, amazing. Yes, I mean, you did that so well. Like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, you're absolutely crushing it. Well, I'm living it every day, buddy. <laughs> yes, that's my next question. So like, when you come up with these, these points, do you, you know, as, as a spe- you are a speaker, you're an executive with, at the organization, you're, you're always doing this, but do you sit aside or do you set aside time and actually like write these points out and like collect your thoughts? Like how do you get them so refined and down? Well, look, I mean, I don't think I have a perfect answer for you, but I think it's a combination of a few things. And by the way, I'd probably give you a different answer today than I would give you six months ago. So in the last six months, I've been on zero business flights, maybe not six months in the last, I guess, since February, right? So I haven't traveled at all. All my interactions are through video with with advisors, with clients, with peers, and obviously with our employees and our teams, right? And so, and that has its own set of challenges because the fatigue on Zoom, the, there is such a thing as video fatigue is really high. You know, we're not really working from home. We're actually living at work. We're no longer working from home. I mean, I am actually living at work. It's just that work happens to be in my home. And so that introduces a whole set of challenges around how do you continue to be creative? How do you continue to engage in collaborative discussions? How do you you know, how do you think about weak ties, right? It's very easy to maintain your, your strong ties, the people you obviously always network with and you speak with and you directly interact with. But how do, you, how, do you, how do you go after your weak ties, the people you wouldn't actually normally talk to, but you might bump into if you went to the office, if you did travel somewhere, you went to another city as an example. And I think a lot more thinking has to go in by all of us on how do we manage and maintain our weak ties because those ties contribute a lot to our intellectual thinking. So anyway, so I think things have changed quite a bit. But I think to your point, I think it's a combination. I don't think I do it well, but I think the, two, the things that do work for me, number one is spending a lot of time with users, with implementers, with sort of the digital-minded uh, folks across the globe. So you need to find more ways to have those interchange and exchange of ideas. And then I think a little bit of it is being structured and translating some of the things you're hearing into a few takeaways that, for instance, my team has to take and then convert these high-level ideas into actual things that will deliver, practices we build, frameworks we develop, IP we put together, and bring it to play. And the reality is there's so much going on in digital. It's a problem of plenty. So here's my advice to every single board I meet with. Pick a few things because there's way too many things to be done right now. Pick a few things and then you get through them but how do you pick the right ones? And that's got to be based on a broad base of listening, high levels of curiosity, good amount of reflection, and then iteratively collaborating it and and testing it with lots and lots of people. Is that something that GenPack does as a service? Is that something you guys do as part of your business? 
Look, we um, uh, so just a thirty second on Genpack. Yeah. We're a we're a we're a we're a basically a transformation company. We help large corporations. We serve Fortune five hundred companies mostly. We'll take those companies and help them transform from who they are today to who they want to be. And a little bit of that is not just branding and marketing. It's actually about the core business processes. How do you go after new markets? How do you think about new products? And in, how do you deliver new experience to customers? Now, part of that is you have to fix your supply chain. Part of that is you have to think about your finance and accounting. Part of that is you have to think about how do you do sourcing and procurement. Part of that is how do you manage regulators? If you're in, in banking or some of the regulated industries like pharmaceuticals, how do you manage all of that stuff to sort of keep up? And the ways we all used to do it was set up really well for the business we were in and was mostly manual. And even if it was automated, it required automation and then people looking at it and making judgment calls. But technology has shifted and available toolkits have gone up. And so there's an opportunity to take that and reimagine those business processes with the use of new capabilities in analytics, in artificial intelligence, in automation, in experience, and put that into place so that new digitally transformed process looks and feels different, but most importantly, delivers results. And so the 30-second answer to your question is, as a company, we do three things. We bring digital technologies to play, uh, which obviously I spend a lot of time on, but we also bring a lot of domain knowledge and process insights because we think that's integral to actually orchestrating the technology in a meaningful fashion to drive results. And then the third thing we do is, particularly for large corporations, you need a programmatic execution of people, process, data, and digital, almost four different things. And you've got to sort of synchronize the execution of those things so all together they end up in the right place. Because if they don't, you don't get the return on the investment. And so we have this notion of transformation services, this programmatic execution of four different components in synchrony to get to an endpoint and a business outcome. And that's what we do. I was taking notes. It's people, process, data, and... Digital technologies. Digital. Okay. See, this is very useful conversation for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're helping these companies do that. What? And you and you talked about some of the trends with the AI. Have you gotten to see that uh, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? I did see that. Yes, the, it's a 19 minute or 17, 18 minute quick uh, quick look. Yes. It, so there's there's like a longer version. You might have seen like a preview that Netflix oh. did, but. Um, I'm sure you got the gist of it, but like I was curious about this concept of of algorithms and echo chambers, and if there's any interesting solutions out there, or or if you have any interesting thoughts on on basically the social media algorithms. They're optimizing to get you to spend as much time. Like the outcome they want is you spending as much time as possible on the platform, so they show you content that will get that to happen. And I was just curious, like what your thoughts are on that in general. Look, it's a, um, it's a really interesting subject because the one side of it is it's really bad and it's really evil and we're manipulating people to the wrong outcomes, right? I also have a, a view that looks at the other side and you have to balance these things. The other side of the thing is we used to do a bunch of things manually. Like as human beings, you and I are talking, you're actually looking at me and you're looking at with your eyes at me. And that's drawing me closer to you. And I'm able to communicate and converse with you in a different way than if you were looking off in the horizon or if you didn't, we didn't have this video, right? These are things we do naturally. As human beings, you and I do it together. I'm moving my hands around because I'm trying to emphasize different points. I'm not even thinking about it. It's just happening. But what did I do? I just, quote unquote, manipulated you to listen to my sentence and pay attention to the two words that I thought were important, right? So the flip side of that discussion is that, you know, you've got to look at it both sides. And the flip side is it's things that we would do anyway. We now have the ability to amplify it, to be able to do it at scale. And so you've got this amazing toolkit that has all of this wondrous possibility. And I think the trick comes down to balance. It comes down to how do you, how do you manage, you know, how, how do you manage the line between stepping too far and doing enough, right? And it's a thin line and it changes by people and you'll have a different perspective than I will have. One of the things I get asked a lot by boards of large corporations we work with, uh, and I always uh, have a point of view on this, which is I actually think we need digital ethics officers. I think boards of large corporations, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, there were boards and then it's sort of, you had audit subcommittees and you had a, you had a compensation subcommittee, right? I think 10 years from now, you'll have ethics subcommittees. And I think large corporations are going to start being a lot more focused on this. It's just a requirement. And these ethics 
officers, these digital ethics officers are going to have to make these hard calls. The trade-off between where the line is and how far do you want to go before you sort of go over too much. And I, I think the documentary you talked about actually does a good job of exposing one side of the equation. And I think you have to sort of balance it with the other side and come to a medium. And, you know, the medium you come to is going to be different for the one for me. But each of us have to take a point of view. Yeah, when I was that watch- makes sense. Oh, 100%. When I was watching it, I was like, the first 15, 10, 15 minutes, I was like, all right, maybe I just turn this off because this is so clearly like just slamming everything. But then I thought, okay, well, this is a different view. Let's just watch the whole thing and and balance it out like I do with with everything else, with all the other digital diet I have, right? And so I watched the whole thing and I said, okay, this is interesting. But one of the things that leaves out, or I didn't think that it addressed properly, was the concept of personal responsibility and individual ownership. Like all of those things they mentioned only take place when I am choosing to go to these places. It's like I'm choosing, like if they were buildings that we would walk into, it would be a much different thing, right? It's like I went to that restaurant or I went to that bar and then this event happened or when I'm inside that environment, I'm aware of what's going on or aware that there are things going on that I'm not aware of, right? But I'm still choosing to go in there. And and I, I understand that there's like a whole study of addiction and all of that, but like you, we were still doing it. Like we're still going there and that's just the landscape the way it is today. And And me personally, I love the fact that there's like all these new new operating system features specifically in apple just because i happen to have the iphone where they like they're forcing you they show you like the screen time that you're using they give you options to limit it between yourself and and your kids uh so i mean i think we're definitely like headed in the right direction we're doing what we can the there's just not like really clear answers to to some of these things and i think getting us on the path to getting clear answers, it would be useful. Yeah, and I think I think you, you hit the, rub on the, uh, the nail on the head. I think in many ways, it's a personal decision. And I think what these kinds of things bring up is the need and the necessities for us to reflect as individuals. What's the right thing for me, for my family? And by the way, that's gonna be different for you. I can't expect a government uh, policy to decide how I want it to be for my family. And so I think what it does is it raises to the level of consciousness, it's kind of some of these things we need to think through. And then I think forces us to reflect on it and make the right decisions. And I think that personal responsibility is a big part of that discussion. Yeah, I mean, that's these are some like the founding principles of the, the nation that we choose to live in, you know? So like, that's I, right. I've actually gotten interested in the concept of free speech lately and just out of like the curiosity of, you know, what it means and the origins and the differences between uh, countries and their free speech policies. And I didn't realize that that's like one of the things that makes America the greatest place ever is because of the free speech. So I'm, that's I'm, right. I'm a huge fan of that, but we'll get, we'll get back on topic with some CTO stuff. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but actually I'm curious about your, I noticed in your profile that you do a lot of work with startups you've been on advisory boards and a part of accelerators and things like that. Are you seeing any like really cool, interesting technology come about in the startup community right now? Tons of it. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I, um, I love being part of startups, by the way, my background also was with startups, uh, you know, built four startup companies all in the Silicon Valley, each kind of ended up being good piece of technology that are part of large corporations. Now my last company was acquired by Genpack, which is how I came to be here as an example. Uh, so I've always loved the innovation, the creativity, the agility, the extreme focus to building an addre- uh, something that addresses new gaps. I think it's been fantastic. And I, and I, as you picked up, I continue to spend a lot of time with startups, um, you know, mostly in advisory boards um, and through incubators and, and venture funds. Um, but to your question, I think there's a number of things that are coming through. Now, I don't look at everything. I look at, a, uh, at things that are much um, narrower focus, but obviously outside of my area of focus, there's so much happening in kind of the whole area of health medicine, both in terms of how it's delivered, but also new medications and new proteins and so forth. So the whole uh, bit there. Then outside of my area of focus is a bunch of stuff that's happening around physics. Um, you know, how do you get to smaller chips and smaller circuit boards and 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 battery capacity and how do you get to a point where, for instance, one day we can fly airplanes 
on electric, right? Which is, I mean, the future is all electric. That's where we're going to end up. And so how do we fast forward the journey to there and get to net zero, et cetera? But if you take that big uh, spectrum of innovation and you kind of reduce it down to the area I focus on, I spend a lot of time in artificial intelligence. I spend a lot of time in automation capabilities and analytics and new modeling techniques and bringing them to life. And then a significant time understanding experience, the role experiences has in the in, in how you bring product and design out. And so in that sort of constrained set, if you will, out, you know, um, not looking at the big thing, I think the intersection of artificial intelligence and practical business problems is a large area of investment. The reality is the world is going to become more electric. Well, it's, we, the future is electric, so that's given. But the world is also going to become more AI-enabled. And as we start using artificial intelligence on our day-to-day lives, in our business in our business applications, it pushes the frontier on a number of things. That allows us to do things that we traditionally thought were manual that can now be done by um, artificial intelligence. And then it allows people like you and I to move to the next value up. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to happen around reinvigorating and reskilling our employees and our kind of global working population to take advantage and um, not get displaced by, but take advantage and enhance their lives through the use of artificial intelligence. So in AI, particularly around computer vision and, you know, physics constrained uh, applications like manufacturing, supply chain, predictive capabilities around machine failure, parts replacement, those sorts of things, a ton of new stuff going on around artificial intelligence and business process. You know, our definition of business process was we put in an enterprise um, ERP in an enterprise resource planning system and we were automated. Well, what did an ERP do? It automated some of the functions. Well, what happened to the rest of it? Well, you know, we'd get on and we'd enter some information, we'd look at it, we'd make a decision, we'd call someone, we'd follow up on an email, we'll check back in, and we thought the whole thing was automated. Well, what was automated was this bit, which is what the RP did. And then this other bit over here was very manual. We just did it. We didn't think about it that way, but that's what we did. I think now we have an ability to look at that entire spectrum from what we used to automate to what we used to be doing manually and look at that again and apply artificial intelligence to actually automate all of that. Now that's bringing significant business benefits. It's not academic advancement. It's not research project. It's nice, not nice and cool things to do. It's real world business applications that drive business results today. And I think there's a significant amount of innovation that's happening at those crossroads. So anyway, I'm, um, I'm very keen to see how that develops. I'm obviously participating in some of this. We use a number of those technologies here in, in my company. Uh, and then obviously advise a number of firms around it. So yeah, lots going on. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, as the technology is advancing, it's like we're getting this larger gap of things that we could do today. And actually, like, I think we're going to need more entrepreneurs, right? Because we're advancing technology at such a rate and there's so much opportunity. Like for me, I just look at the market and I say, take a step back and focus on doing more of what's working today because there's it's so exciting there's so many opportunities to bring technologies that are just that are out there and exist and just put them together with the right people and in, in the right markets to to create value it's it's i think we're at a better time than we've ever been before in like the history of humanity with opportunity for business well, I think there's, I think, I think you're 100% right. I think there's a large opportunity that is emerging at a faster clip and pace than it's ever done, been before. But I actually think there are a couple of things also happening. The toolkits, you know, the, the bits and bytes that you bring to solve for the problem as these opportunities emerge, I mean, that has progressed significantly. And this is not even 10 years ago, five years ago, just in the last 12 months. If you think about some of the developments that have happened around AI and you look at the work that happened at a, you know, on BERT as an example, or some of these new language processing tools, it's amazing. And so you need, um, there's three things going on. There's large opportunities that are emerging on the back of all the transitions we're facing, the resilience through the pandemic, the growth requirements after that, et cetera, et cetera. There's a new set of toolkits, mostly using artificial intelligence and new ways of solving problems that are now on the table. They didn't really have five years ago or 10 years ago that you can now bring to bear. So that's number two. I think the third thing that's happening is most of the low-hanging fruit is actually off the table. So what you need, and to your point about entrepreneurs, you know, most I think most opportunities now are complex, they're intertwined, and they need a convergence of different disciplines. So you need process understanding to combine with digital, or you need to understand industry domains and combine with AI, or you need to understand the, the, the uh, physics and AI, mathematics, at the same time to solve for predictive an- analysis, right? And so this convergence 
idea. This idea of being able to combine two or three disciplines to collectively solve the problem in a different way requires a very different way of thinking. And that's why I think to your point about entrepreneurs, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurs. There used to be one at one point in time. I think they're key and central to this innovation spectrum that we're getting into because you know, many of us, uh, I spend a lot of time, my time with large enterprises. I'm caught up with the problems of today. I have to deliver return on investment for, for the people I work with today or maybe for tomorrow. I'm not necessarily getting enough time to think about five years out. What entrepreneurs are able to do is to step out of that noise and they're able to kind of lift up a little bit. They're able to bring in collaborative teams that come from different disciplines. They're able to stay on top of new emerging trends they weren't practically usable yesterday, but now have become practically usable today. And because they're thinking broader, they can bring that in. And then, of course, there you combine that, those three ingredients with agile, with velocity, and then the ecosystems that have been set up. I used to live in Silicon Valley. I mean, that ecosystem is absolutely amazing from the point of view of all of the components you need pulled together to be able to bring a technology idea to market. All of that stuff is just available as a service. So you don't have to go you know, sort of reinvent the wheel on many of these things. And so it brings you a lot more focus on what you're trying to do. So anyway, so I, I do think we're living through an amazing time because opportunities are galore. But actually now the toolkits have significantly improved. And this notion of convergence of different sciences or different domains or arts, you know, that intersection is much better understood. And as we explore more of that, I think we'll achieve and, and, and be able to extract more value from them. So with these entrepreneurs, because you get to, to coach them and interact with them, what are some of like the common mistakes that you see happening with uh, earlier stage entrepreneurs? Well, you know, uh, I, I, think, um, I think there's two or three things that come to mind. Um, invariably, my first advice to entrepreneurs is, is solve the hardest problem first. So anytime you set up on a new initiative or a new venture, right? There's like a set of things you have to solve first. Like you got to get this done, you got to get this, and it has to meet this requirement. It needs to be able to solve this, da 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 da. And then you sort of, you know, one way to approach it is to say, let's start with the smallest problem. It's just too much, too much to be done. And then we'll solve that, and we'll go to the next one. We'll go to the next one. We'll go to the next one. The reality is, time is very precious, and you actually want to fail fast. Failing fast is not a bad thing. It's a great thing because it allows you to sift through ideas that aren't going to make sense to the idea that will make sense much faster and you can iterate to the right answer very quickly. So number one advice, start with the hardest problem. If, if, you, if you're going to go solve for something, right, break it down to its component problems, pick the hardest one, pick the one that you think is most likely going to fail the most. Try and solve that first because if you solve it, then you know you work back down. If you don't solve it, you actually move on to the next idea. And I think this iteration is super integral to the process of innovation. So that's number one. I think the second one, and startups by nature do it better than large corporations, right? Large corporations traditionally have a challenge with this. Startups have to focus, 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 right? You just don't have the investment capital. You don't have the mental bandwidth. You don't have the team capacity to solve for hundreds of things. So you've got to reduce the problem set to very small. And so you pick one thing and you solve for it. And then you move to the second problem and you solve for it. And that's a great thing to do because focus drives better results, right? One of my, um, if, you, if you ask me what is the hardest thing for me that I have to do, the hardest thing for me is that I have to say no to things. I have got more ideas, more opportunities, more great out, possible outcomes on the table than we can serve up, that we can deliver on, that we can take on. And so part of my job, by the way, is to say, yes, we will do that. But more importantly, here are the things we're not going to do. Here are the things we will pass upon and actually have the conviction to say it. Because if you don't say it, if you don't put it out there, you leave that murky, you know, teams around you, teams under you will get you know, they'll, you know, someone will be running in this direction, someone's going to be running in that direction, right? And they'll be doing the right things because those opportunities exist, except that you'll be diluting it, you'll be spreading yourself to, to so thin. So I think the second advice is pick a few areas and go deep as opposed to pick a broad thing and try and do everything in there. I think that's the second big advice. And the third one um, is think about channels, think about customers, and think about adoption and end users upfront, design it upfront. So it isn't anymore about, I'm going to build a cool technology. I'm, not, I'm going to build an interesting product. I'm going to build something that delivers this performance that is way outside of what is currently delivered. That's not enough. That is not what it takes to build a successful business. You have to think about how do you take it to market? Who are the buyers going to be? Why will they buy? And then more importantly, how will users adopt it? With artificial intelligence, and we're seeing results that are just amazing, but one of the challenges with artificial intelligence is adoption. 
you know, how do you answer the question of why should I trust this? It's a black box. I don't know how to, and you can keep showing all the results all day long, right? And the results are fantastic and amazing. But till you can get people to believe in it and understand the logic or how it actually functions, you're not going to get the adoption. Design that early into your thinking. Think about it proactively and get that into your business plan. So they're the three things I would say to any startup CEO that I, that I meet. Man, this is great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, like I, one of the, my favorite things about doing this, this podcast is that I get to meet brilliant people and uh, get to, you know, hear their, the takeaways from years of experience. And I, I love, I love the, the fresh perspective that you bring when I hear your ideas and I'm, I'm trying to like reconcile with mine and then also comparing them to past failures. And I'm like, Oh, yep. Yep. Uh, Cause I'm just always trying to figure out like what's true and, and what works. But yeah, that, that is actually great advice because figuring out who, who the buyers are and, and why they will buy, like what's that point that they're so frustrated with, they're willing to hand over cash. That is so important because there's a billion improvement features, but people don't like, they're just too small. They're, they just don't have the attention or they don't have the focus or the timing because you kind of have to get this. I guess what I'm learning, and I'm, I'm, I'm new to it, obviously, but like, what I'm learning is like, the market has this like motion and this movement and these trends. And you really have to figure out like, not necessarily like a specific exact company at first, but like what's happening in the market? Why are people, where are they deploying money right now? And then how can I, how can I connect with those types of people and then like better validate the idea and the problem? And, but it's interesting after you build a product and then, you know, you build all the features and then you realize the way you market it is not necessarily based on the details of the product. The way you're marketing it is how you're going to help the individual solve their problem. And that took me a That's while exactly to learn. That's exactly right. Yeah. A lot of pain there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of figuring out a lot of time, but that's the, the best lessons though. The ones you never forget are the ones where you invested a large amount of time and then clearly failed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a big saying in the venture uh, circuits that I take a CEO that has failed any day over a CEO that has only been successful because it's the failures that teach you the most. It's where the learning really comes from. And so uh, it's, it's good advice. You mentioned, you touched briefly on this concept of transparency within these AIs and algorithms. Are you seeing any tools that are, are out there that are helping make it more transparent about why the, the algorithms are coming to their decisions, how they get there? Yeah, I think, look, I mean, AI fundamentally does have a little bit of a black box problem associated with it. It's just, it's got good reasoning built in, but the reasoning is not obvious in a way that makes sense. One of the best ways we found to tackle that problem is actually to figure out the feature set, which is the, 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 the variables that drive the end decision. So, you know, think about it uh, as an example. We do, a, we apply AI in a bunch of areas. One of the areas we're applying banking is to balance sheets. So think about many banks will have loan portfolios that lend to small and medium or large business corporations. So you think about a loan that has a portfolio of a thousand small and medium businesses, um, and you have to understand the risk in that portfolio as a way to manage that business properly. And traditionally, the way that used to be done is you'd basically call people up and get them to send their balance sheets. And you'd have a team of CPAs read through the balance sheets and figure out, well, this company's got so much risk. And then it's got this one, this other one here. And then you kind of aggregate it all together and you come with the risk for the uh, portfolio. I'm simplifying it, but you get the general point. Well, all of that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of, it's dependent on manual interpretation. You can't like react to it and say, something just happened last night in the stock market. Let's quickly reevaluate. Well, you can't get it done. It just takes time. And then, of course, it's expensive because you have to do it with all of the uh, expertise that comes into play. But fast forward to today, we, do, we use it doing AI. We apply it. We apply artificial intelligence. We extract all of this at high speed. We convert these PDFs into structured documents. We're able to, you know, extract meaning from these terms. We're converting them into numbers. We're applying formulas, and lo and behold, we can come with a with a spread or a, or a risk score for that portfolio. So, the, what's the trick in that? The trick we've learned is if you just gave a risk score and say, "Well, this portfolio has got this risk," right? You get the question of. Um, why, why, would I, why is that right? Like, why is it not this? Why, how, why did it change? And, and, and the best answer you had was, well, trust me, or actually the best answer you had was wait and see, right? You can, you know, time will tell you, right? But that's not a good enough answer and certainly doesn't work for regulators. 
So the trick we found was, can you breadcrumb the decisions through? And what I mean by that is, I'll give you a score. And you'll say, Sanjay, come on, why is this score right? And I kind of go, you know, just click on it. And you click on it and it drills down to the next level. Now it shows you the 100 companies and it shows you the risk number for each of them. The seventh one didn't make any sense. Like, ah, okay, click on it. You click on that and it breaks down to uh, something else. And you click on something else and keep, and you click and drill and you ultimately get to, here are the two sentences we picked on page 17 in the footnote of this balance sheet. And here's a sentence. I'm going to just, it shows up on the screen, right? And you read that and you kind of go, well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, maybe it makes sense. What just happened? What just happened is in the old world, I'd still be given a number. I still kind of go, well, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. Let me walk over to Mary. I go to Mary. And Mary said, well, you know, da, 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 da. And it's like, so I walk over to John. And then John says, well, let me open this book and show it to you because you know, he knows what the balance sheet says, right? So really this click and drill, this way of kind of being able to introspect the number and be able to understand what feature, in this case, what is the footnote in this example that drove that decision, that feature understanding becomes really important. And so what we've done is we now implement AI with these breadcrumbs. So you can follow the logic trail. You can get to the point. And now you can go and say, well, why, why does Mary think that the, those two sentences imply something? Well, that's the same problem you had before. Like, because before you had Mary who was making that call. She was a CPA and you trusted her, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to emulate the thought process, the, uh, the, the way you approach it, to be more friendly, to be more nuanced in the experience of what you used to do, so it kind of comes to life much better. And I think that's one of the one of the ways we we found to solve for this problem of trust. And trust is important, but more, what's more important is ad- adoption and usage, right? But the other thing is now there's new pieces of technology that actually allow you to you know look at something and then say what are the features that are driving that decision. And for regulators that are trying to understand whether or not to approve the use of something, it becomes very important because now they can look at sort of the underlying components that drive a specific decision and they can kind of follow that logic trail a little bit more. So we made a lot of advancements, both by uh, in the area of designing better for usage as well in the area of kind of this feature analysis that allows you to understand the underlying components of what drives a decision. And I think that's, that's certainly improved the, uh, the adoption and the usability of AI meaningfully for us. Yeah. It's, uh, as, you're, as you're describing that, I was like, that's, it's like we're taking human knowledge and then making it digital. Like we're taking thought patterns or way people work, like these rule sets of how people think, and then we're, we're digitizing them so we can deploy on that scale. And it's interesting because it's like almost the technological, or I think it was the industrial revolution. We just took the movements humans made and had robots make them. And now we're taking like the ways people think and, and how we solve problems and then doing the same thing there. I'm just always curious the way my mind always works is stretch that out, you know, two decades. And what's the next thing we do? If we went from the physical to the mind, like what's the next, the next step other than like just neural linking and going up into the computer. <laughs> I think it's a good question you ask, and it's one that um, you know all of us reflect on. I'll give you a perspective. I'll actually start with a quick story that I happen to like a lot. It's a story that someone else told me, and it's stuck in my mind. And I think I'm going to get the dates wrong, but let's say 30 years ago, roughly. And I'll explain why the date's important. Think about this. Five individuals used to get together every last Friday of the month at the donut shop around the corner for a cup of coffee and donuts, and they'd meet from 8 to 11. Guess what they were doing? They were figuring out the sales forecast for the next month. These were five regional sales managers that founded upon themselves to get together and collectively think through trends and forecast better so that they could get their you know, customers satisfied with the right products at the right point in time and not overstock and all this other stuff. The reason I said 35 or 30 years ago is because at the time, Microsoft Excel didn't exist, right? So this was a verbal discussion. People get together with notepads and pen and all this other stuff, and it kind of worked well. Well, let's look at the dynamics in that, in that discussion. There are two people in the room that were just fantastic at arithmetic. They were good mathematicians. Some would say, well, I think this thing's not going to work out. You know, this will come down by 2% and this thing is going to be a little bit better or whatever. They just figure out all the numbers in the head and then come back with, all right, that means this is the number of units we need, right? So that, so the, and they added a lot of value because if they weren't there, then you'd be sort of taking, spending a lot of time, time trying to work out the math. Two of the people in the room were actually good listeners. They didn't sort of really think as much about trend lines, but they heard everyone. They said, wow, that's a great idea. Well, this is going to change. This one I do buy into. And they got, and they'd be the best implementers. They'd take the advice, they tune the way they sold, they 
talk about new areas, and boom, you'd see that reflect in the sales. And then there was this one other person, right? The fifth person, and they just asked these kind of, just these questions, which just like these nagging questions. It's kind of like, enough already. Like, oh, what if this happened? What if that happens? Well, what if this change? And it's kind of like, you know, stop with the what ifs, will you? Like, we got to get work done. And so then Microsoft Excel comes out, obviously. That's why I said it's 30 years ago. And now in a second, in the flash of an eye, someone said something, you put it in, the entire spreadsheet recalculates, right? You know, you know that, right? So now what happens to this group? Well, the two guys that were fantastic arithmetic, their value is gone, right? That, that whole thing isn't as important anymore. The two people that are out there that said, you know, once we make a decision, we're going to implement it better than anyone else. Oh my God, like now these become stellar because you have better decisions coming out and then they're great executioners. They can make strategic decisions in the field based on a set of predictions. But this one person that asked all these nagging questions, guess what? That person becomes the star of the group. Why? Because now you have this fantastic tool that'll recalculate numbers in a second. And what you need is the what if analysis. What if this happened? Well, put it in. What if we did this other thing? Well, just put that in. What if we change this, that, and the other? Well, let's try that out. And then you can extrapolate. You can work through all these scenarios and come to the right conclusions. So the point I'm trying to make with the story is, you know, when new technology comes around, you know, we have a need, uh, you know, uh, there's a need in, in sort of the, 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 the humans in the loop to reconfigure themselves around it. And the arithmetic in this example doesn't make as much sense. But the what if analysis, which is low on the list, by the way, it's, it's a hassle. It was a nagging thing, right? Now that's like super important on the list of things to do. And this thing about taking some predictions and being able to act on it now becomes even more important. And I think that's the view we need to take of artificial intelligence. AI is going to be great at prediction. It's going to make better and better and better predictions going forward. It's a prediction engine. That's what it does. What's the probability something's going to happen tomorrow? What is the probability this other thing's going to affect? That's what it does. And it's going to get more accurate. There's no denying it. But once you have a prediction, you still have to make a call. You still have to apply judgment. You still have to contextualize it. You still have to make a decision. And this is where I think humans play in the loop. And the more we think about it as that collective uh, continuum, the more as we think about it as this is, these are computers in a group, humans in the loop, right? Like you think about it as a collective ecosystem and you say, well, this one kind of gets better. This one has to kind of compensate this way. And you reconfigure yourself around it. And I think that's the trick. I think too much of the narrative today is that, well, it's going to have this impact on jobs and it's all going to be negative and computers are going to run humankind, da, 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 da. I don't believe in any of that. I think there's an opportunity to use AI in a way that's really meaningful and is going to drive amazing amounts of productivity for us. Yes, that means we have to change the way we think. Yes, that means I can't go to this donut meeting and still do math and think, and think that that's all I'm going to do and be good at it. I have to do what if. I have to think about judgment. I have to apply that. And they're the sorts of things I think, you know, I, I meet with CEOs and you know, chief executives at many different companies. And it's one of the biggest discussions we have is what is the future of work, right? How do we reconfigure ourselves to take advantage of all of this technology in a way that we drive more value for our clients, for more value for our shareholders? And that discussion is really crucial to it. So, sorry, this is an area no. I'm very passionate about. And there's many things that have been said about it. So, I know it sort of kind of went on a, a, off a little bit, but it's, it's a really important topic. No, it's, I'm, I'm like dazed out, like just listening. Like, this is so good. Like, this is, uh, dazed is not the right word, but like, I, I'm just like, what you're saying is true. And it's, I like how you, I like how you articulate this concept of, of the fear because I haven't heard that explanation before. That was, that was good and that was new for me. So, so thank you for that. Cause a lot of the, the, the fear-based conversation is, is the one that spreads really fast and that people like to, to have over and over and over. But I've often thought that like what technology is doing is it's amplifying humanity. So, you know, we, it's, it's amplifying the good parts and the bad parts, right? So it's amplifying everything. We've never been more connected. I mean, we're bouncing light like around the world right now talking in real time, which is magical and beautiful. <laughs> but, but I think some of the things that people get upset about um, are how people use the tools and not necessarily the tools themselves. I think it's up to us to use them. We have to use the tools correctly uh, and, then, and then we'll be on a good track. I don't think the tools are going to, well, I don't want to say this in case like future AI hears me say this. No. <laughs> but I don't think the tools are going to, I, I think the tools will run us if we let them. But I think as long as we have competent, intellectual, like intelligent, pragmatic people who, who understand how to balance things and discipline and ownership and these concepts, as long as we have like really good, strong, 
people in the world, then the technology will be the tool that works for us. Well said. I also like the idea of, or I'm curious on your thoughts. So do you think that we will get to a point where everything is automated or, or so many things are automated that we don't like have to work as much or work will change to be more like creative endeavors or other like human things that are more like human-y, like animal-like, like singing, like singing's an animal thing too, right? It's like something we do, like you, you were talking earlier about like physics and the world and things that are physically constrained. I happen to like, and I'm learning a lot about myself every day, but I happen to really like doing physical work. Like I go to the gym every day, right? Like I, I like lifting the weights. I feel better than I've, than I, like if I don't go, I feel horrible. When I do go, I feel great. And, and I like, I, I like the concept that there'll be more time for that, but it's very unclear, like how we get there, because you hear people talking about all these concepts of like universal basic income. And there's just so, and then there's so many ideas out there right now. And I don't even know if I'm making a whole lot of sense because my mind's kind of jumping around to everything, but uh, hopefully it inspires a, a good response from you. <laughs> Well, it's, you bring up a really important topic, right? And we talked a little bit about the future of work um, and the distribution of labor, uh, and clearly it's going to evolve and we're going to be doing less of the mundane and the repetitive tasks. Um, and I think the, the trend line is going to be more towards judgment um, and making decisions in the back of those predictions. But I think the point you made about the role of the human as it relates to empathy, uh, and I think you talk about human experience, but it's really empathy and understanding that is a really important part. And I think there's a role to, and there, I think there's a need to, to take those creative elements, the, the whole element of empathy, the whole element of design, you know, that, that just, in, you know, you, you, you know, you, you talked about some technology earlier, but, you know, you, some of these things, you open a box and the, and the, the sheer process of unveiling and opening the box to take out, you know, AirPods or whatever, it just, it brings a sense of um, joy, right? And understanding that and then being able to package that with the AI to make a composite product that has enough of the human and the empathy and the experience elements, but enough of the automation of the mundane and the routine tasks. I think that combination becomes very important. So I do think that um, as society, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna have to find a way, and I think that's where the reskilling is really important, but to find a way to actually reskill ourselves to take on tasks at the higher level up, move one step up. I mean, you know, it's happened before. I mean, used to be that data processing, entering all this information used to be a big task. And then obviously with computers coming in, all that stuff kind of went into spreadsheets and went into Word documents and that whole profession sort of got wiped out. But on the back of that, new profession started. So, you know, who would have thought that graphics design was even a career pre-PCs, like that's a whole new career. Search engine optimization, like would that even, like I wouldn't even have thought about it pre-Google, like what, what exactly is search engine optimization? Like why does it even matter? So the point is new careers, new ways of working will evolve. Some of them we know, some of them we don't even know, so we have to be very creative around that. And the role of empathy, the role of the humanness, the role of some of those human factors around experience become very important. And I do think that that trend line's obvious. You can actually already see it today and it's just going to accelerate. So I think there's a lot, a lot of new stuff coming at us. And, and so the question then becomes, what do you and I do? What do you and I do? And I think that, that, you know, and as you think about it, I think the answer there is you have to be very curious. You have to be very open. You have to be able to look at opportunities and say, how do I reshape? How do I learn? How do I how do I learn more to be able to reapply my judgment in an area that's new to us? And I think that's going to become a key skill set. I don't think employers are going to hire for skills anymore. They're going to hire for attitude, not aptitude, attitude. Do you have a curious mind? Do you have the desire to learn? Like that is number one on the list for when I, when I go hire, try and hire people, right? The things that are top of the list are, you know, are you curious? Number one, most important question. Number two, are you collaborative? Do you have a high EQ? Not a high IQ. Do you have a high EQ? Can you work with a team of people? Can you draw a set of diverse inputs? Can you bring a set of people together that wouldn't normally be working together in a way that you can extract the best of their thinking and compose that into an end product? They're the skill sets of the future. You know, whether you're good at math, whether you are good at uh, some other skill is less relevant. And I think that's the way we all need to start thinking about our own 
uh, personas, our own learning and our own development. And that's an important part of each one of us's sort of perspective on life. Oh, nice. Yes, Sanjay. I want to be respectful of the, the three o'clock uh, stop. So we've got about four minutes left. Uh, I'm just incredibly grateful when I get to speak to you because I love your insight. You're very kind. Thank you for taking the time and uh, love to carry on the conversation another time. Yeah, you have an open invitation. So I'll, I'll check in with you like next year. We can catch up and see what's going on, get more AI questions together. And uh, it'll be fantastic because we, we only got through like half the topics here. So I'm, I'm always excited. Uh, so maybe next year we'll hang out and, and have another chat. Well, I, you know, I love these conversations. And part of the reason I love them is because they're two-way. It makes me think and it makes me learn. It allows me to reflect on the things that come in. And to that note, I want to let your audience know that they can reach me or uh, into me. I'm on LinkedIn. It's easy if you get my first name, last name right. Um, and that's not an easy task. But once you get it, it's easy to link it into me. And I'd love to hear more from you. And if you disagree with something, please tell me. And I'd love, I, I would learn more from that exercise. So with that, thank you again. Yeah, and we'll put everything in the show notes too. So we'll put like your LinkedIn profile, a link to Gen. Is there any call to action for GenPact, by the way? I think that GenPact is very curious and very much, uh, I think there's two things I'd say. One is we're very curious about the future of work and we have a point of view and we're developing it iteratively with audiences. So one call to action is interact with us, pull us in, get us into a discussion. We can help frame that together collectively. And I think the other part of it is the more kind of here and now, which is we're people that can roll up their sleeves and actually get involved in kind of the dirty, detailed, you know, uh, grungy work of transforming core business processes. And any, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we have to work for you. It, you know, if you have ideas, if the thoughts, if you want to learn from our mistakes, if you want to just bounce an idea, you know, shoot us a note, um, come to genpack.com. Happy to have that conversation any day. Oh, it's like a kid in the candy shop, what you guys get to do. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. No, thanks to you, Joel, and the team. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.